Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you tonight as we continue our series, Baked Together. We're thinking about what it looks like to be the body of Christ. And I am so excited to talk about that over these coming weeks as we started last week, because we're also in the midst of launching in-person worship last night, and I'll share more about this later. A group of those who have been praying for Little Hills gathered together and prayed for our community and our world. And we have so much more coming up. But the key thing is we do that, and that's true of all of us, anyone who's a Christian, wherever we might go to church and wherever God might place us throughout life, is to be thinking about what does it look like to actually be the body of Christ? What does it look like to follow Jesus? In some sense, that's what we do every week when we come before his word. And another exciting thing that that strikes me tonight and why I'm glad that you're here is this is actually the second anniversary of Steadfast. We've been doing this for 104 weeks now, coming to his word and sharing together, reflecting on it together, applying it to our lives together. And it's just a joy to share that with you. Well, tonight we get to a passage of scripture that perhaps as much as any passage, though, directs us to think specifically about what it is that Jesus has done and calls us to and calls us to as we follow him. All scripture points to God's will. But here we see in Philippians 2 verses 4 to 11, Paul distilling everything down into a picture of exactly what Jesus has done. So let's come before our God and ask for his guidance, and then let's turn to this incredibly beautiful hymn of what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love, your your goodness in, in gathering little hills together, your goodness in gathering all of us who are online together over these last years and the years to come as well. And most of all, thank you for your love that you show in, in, in giving us your word, your love that you show in giving us your son, your love that we experience as you call us into your family. Father, tonight as we think about what it means to to follow Jesus, to be your light in this world, would you guide us? Would you help us to see the places where maybe our hearts are a little blinded and see more as you see? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think about God coming into this world, he came into this world as a human being. And a few months ago at Christmas, when, when we reflect on the Christmas story, we, we talk about how Jesus came in in a very humble setting, in a, a manger, in a stable. It's not the sort of amazing entry that we would imagine for the creator of everything. And yet it's hard to get our minds around what does it mean to, to see God coming into the world humbly in a way that people would underestimate him. And maybe the best way to understand that, to think about that, is to think about how we often underestimate other people. To, to think about maybe someone that you've encountered that people saw and didn't really find particularly impressive or striking. They didn't fill out their resume in a certain way. And yet, when, when you actually know who they are, they're incredibly impressive. Yesterday was... My grandpa's 102nd birthday, if he were still alive, and of course, because we have hope in, in Christ, I, I look forward to seeing him again someday. But thinking about him and thinking about who he was, if you knew him, you would just be amazed. Anyone who knew him and really got to know him, you couldn't help but be amazed. He was, he was one of a kind, and he was joyful and, and 
loving and always there for, for those whom he loved that whenever they needed anything. And yet on paper, he wouldn't necessarily stand out. He, he didn't get to complete his education. He didn't have impressive degrees. He, he worked in a, a, a nice straightforward profession as a butcher, but, but never, he didn't accomplish th- the sorts of things that, that might get you put down in a history book. But when I think about him, and I think about someone looking at that and maybe thinking, oh, well, here's a person. The word underestimated kept coming back to me because I thought if you actually knew him and knew what he was like and knew just this incredible mind that he had and, and how he was always dreaming up all these things and he could do anything. He could figure out puzzles. He could stay in a desk like this one behind me. He he could make sure that he had the right supplies for whatever crisis might come up for his family. He just always was thinking, always planning, and then always doing it with a, a giant smile and a, a bit of mischief. You, you just couldn't ever overestimate him if you actually knew him. And, and maybe you can pick that up a little bit. If you look at a group photo like this, that he's right in the, in the foreground. And as you look at him, you can, you can see he, with that big grin, you might get a little hint of who he is. Or or here here he is with me, and obviously he's a character here. But if you didn't actually really get to know him, you, you might underestimate him. But one of the things I love, and it's, it's so neat over the years, is is hearing from people who, who knew him, who, who I, I, I get to talk to, and I hear them talking about him, and inevitably, they're telling all these amazing, wonderful stories of whatever he did to help them and how he was there for them. It reminds me just of exactly who he was. If you knew him, that's what you knew. When we think about Jesus and we think about him coming into the world, people underestimated him by a long, long shot. People thought, oh, here's just this guy from Nazareth. Here's just the carpenter's son. Here, here's someone with no rabbinical training. He wasn't someone who came into the world in a way that people would immediately think highly of him. And for that matter, he came into the world as a human being. He came into the world as one of those whom he'd made. Isn't that mind-boggling? And it's mind-boggling for us, I think, because we want to be thought of highly. It's a, a natural impulse that we have that, that we would like people to look up to us. And we might think of different ways. Maybe it's trying trying to have accomplishments as far as degrees and, and, and things of that nature. So people think, oh, isn't this person well-educated? Or or finding a high-powered job so, so people look at us and say, oh, isn't this someone who's powerful and influential? Maybe it's online and social media and we want to see how many likes can we get? How many reactions can we get to things? So that people are saying, yeah, I, I, I like you. I think you're important. We keep falling into that. But listen to what Paul said in verse 4 of Philippians 2, if you'd turn there with me. We looked at this last week, and it sets us up for where we're going tonight. Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Looking to the interests of others is not necessarily helpful to getting people to look up to us. Now, now we might, in, in, in certain instances, think, well, okay, I'm going to do something nice for somebody so that they'll look up to me. But, but that always falls short. And if you're going to be someone who's almost larger than life, being there for other people like, like my grandpa was, you can't do it because you want people to look up to you. 
You have to do it because that's who you are. And Paul says that's what we should be. We should be those who are there for other people. And, and yes, he doesn't rule out, we talked about this last week, caring about our own interests. But the key thing is that we're not looking to be looked at as wonderful. We're not looked at, we're not looking for people to praise us and think highly of us, but to think highly of our God. And Paul says, let's think about our God and what he's done for us. And he turns in verse five to the subject of what Jesus has done for us. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about what Paul is saying there. And, and this is stuff that we know in our heads, but, but I think we have a really hard time actually getting it to go from, from in our heads to, to being what we understand as concrete reality. It's, it's there in abstract, but, but what does it mean for the God of the universe to, to empty himself? John Calvin, reflecting on this passage, remarks that it's not what some heretics over time have said where he actually drained out his divinity as if God could make himself not God. But rather, it's that he hid his glory. And in some sense, maybe that's even more mind-boggling. Because if we have power, if we have glory, if we have influence, do we want to hide that or do we want people to know about it? But what did Jesus do? He hid his glory and came into the world to experience the world that we experience. Once again, listen to these words. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He came into the world to serve. The God of the universe, the one who could demand anything and everything, came into the world. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wanted to restore us. And this coming into the world as a servant isn't in the, the Instagram-friendly way that sometimes we want to serve. Take a look at what Isaiah says in, in chapter 52 of Isaiah, when he reflects on what the servant, what Jesus was to come and do. It says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah is looking before Jesus is even born to the cross that the God already had planned out. He was already going to come and go to the cross. And Isaiah sees something of this and describes it to us and says, by the end of his service, the servant is going to be so marred, he's not even recognizable. Is he really even human, as one commentator put it? And not in the, oh, wow, isn't he divine and wonderful way? But is he even human because he's so beat up and marred and disfigured that it's hard to believe he even was just one of us anymore? Jesus didn't come into the world to be the sort of servant that, that gets some photo op service and people say, oh, wow, look at this servant. He didn't come into the world so people say, wow, God is really neat. He comes into the world. He came into the world to, to actually give his life for us. And that's a hard thing. I, I think, we again, these are concepts that are almost impossible to get our minds around. Maybe the the most we can even come to approach it is when we hear about something in our own time where someone sacrifices their life for other people. And in that, I was struck a few weeks ago 
by the story of a Ukrainian soldier. I'm probably going to butcher his name. I believe it's Vitaly Shakun Voldemorich. Voldemorovich. There we are. And he, he looks like any number of, of young men serving in, in the military. But he has a special story, and you probably heard about it. He was the, the engineer for the Ukrainian army who was on a bridge that was key for the Russians to bring in tanks into Ukraine over the last few weeks. And he was charged with putting down explosives to blow up the bridge so the tanks couldn't come. But as he was doing that, he ran into a problem, and he knew that the only way he could blow up the bridge in time to keep the tanks from coming was to manually cause the explosion. And if he manually caused the explosion, that would involve blowing himself up as well. And so he did, because he knew that was the way to save other people. And we think about a story like that, and I think, wow, isn't that incredible? And it is incredible. And I think when we see stories like that, what we're seeing in the sacrifice that someone like that makes is a foretaste of what God does did and will do for us because we don't fully experience it yet in this life but when we think about when someone gives his or her life to save other people it doesn't make any sense from any level other than that as someone who bears the image of god that somewhere in there even though we're fallen and sinful and so often selfish that person in that moment that this this young man in that moment could think I am going to save other people, even if it means that I lose my life. That's a challenge to all of us as we we think about what does it mean to follow Jesus, because Jesus ups the ante even further. Because here it's not just a fallen, sinful human being who's going to die anyway. Here it is, God himself comes into the world. God himself goes to the cross. God himself bears the punishment of death for us. You can't get a greater sacrifice than that than someone who's perfectly innocent, perfectly holy, perfectly worthy of only praise, choosing to come into the world and receive what what we deserve. And in that we see the ultimate picture of the sort of service and sacrifice that, that isn't that photo op service. It isn't that sort of servant attitude that sometimes we want to take that is okay so long as at some point people are going to realize how great it was that we were serving. And we all fall into that trap. It's something that we need to to guard ourselves against. And it's not because it's, it's bad if we do something and we're serving that someone appreciates it and says so. That's not bad. We should encourage each other. And, and it's nice to know that the things that we're doing are appreciated and meaningful. But the key thing is that we're not doing it for that, and we would do it even if we didn't receive that. The sort of service that Jesus is doing here is is getting one's limbs blown off kind of service. The sort of service that, that you're giving up more than you're possibly going to get in praise. And that's the sort of service that, that takes us aback, and we think, but, but I want to be comfortable. I, I want things to be okay for myself. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it was going to be so great to be on that cross. Or he was going to receive glory he didn't already have because he was on the cross. Jesus went to the cross because he loves you and loves me. And in that, then, we see a picture of what real servant attitudes look like. 
And we're not going to get it perfectly right. We can't imitate Jesus perfectly. We're, we're going to always have that mix of selfishness, of of doing things so that people will praise us, of, of doing things for all kinds of, of mixed motives. But as we look to Jesus, it reminds us, his service, his life reminds us of what we're called to do. And, and when we do that, then we start to get a picture of what it should look like as we serve each other as the body of Christ, as we serve the world, because as we look at those who are hardest to love in the body of Christ, as we look to those who we find hardest to love outside the body of Christ, when we think about how a holy God looks at us, we realize there's nothing in comparison because however hard it is for that person that we struggle to love, how, however hard it is for us to love that person, how much harder is it for the God of the universe, the Holy One, to look at all of us who are constantly messing up and making mistakes and and to love us enough to, to give his life for us. But that is exactly what he did. And then he commands us to follow him. Take a look at what Paul says as he goes on beyond Jesus' death in the following verses of Philippians 2. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now again, here's the key thing, because we can fall into the temptation. Oh, well, Jesus did this, and look, now he's praised, now he's glorified. But Jesus is God. Yes, the tongues on earth are praising him, but he didn't need to come to earth to be praised. That's not the point here. I, I love John Calvin brings out this in his commentary, and it's such an important thing for us to catch. Because we can fall into, well, Jesus does this thing, he, he serves really well, and we kind of whitewash it a little, it doesn't seem so bad that he's going to the cross, and then he gets a lot of praise, and isn't this really nice? That's not it. He, he dies for us. And he dies for us, not so that he can somehow finally then be worthy of glory. He was already worthy of glory from all eternity. But rather, he did it that he might rescue us. And we get more of a picture of that if we look at the words that, that Paul even seems to have in mind here from Isaiah 52. We already looked at Isaiah 52:14, where Isaiah says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. We have that picture of the gruesomeness of it. But let's go back one verse. Take a look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. High and lifted up shall be exalted. It's a prophecy of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be lifted high. He's going to be raised. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to ascend into heaven. And then there's some debate on that third one of exaltation, whether that's now as he reigns, as the son reigns at the right hand of the father, or if it's talking about his second coming. But really the big point is, it's describing here what Jesus does. And yes, there's glory in that, but again, Jesus was already God. The servant didn't become worthy of glory. The servant was always worthy of glory. And so Jesus didn't do this for the reward. We start out with this picture of how he's going to be 
praised and, and all this wonderful stuff, but then we immediately go to the gruesomeness of the cross. And, and so when we think about the, the glorification going on, the, the praise of Jesus going on, we, we can't separate it from that he did it out of loving sacrifice for us. Last week, we looked at John 15, 12. And let's take a look at the next few verses. It pulls all this together. Jesus says to his disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What does Jesus call his disciples to do? What does the triumphant, glorious king do? He, we're told here in Philippians 2 that, he's, that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow at his name. Well, what does that triumphant, victorious king say we ought to do? He says we should love one another as he's loved us. That picture of self-sacrifice that he has, that we should do that. When he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you to do, we might first think, well, but, but how could I ever do all the things that God commands me to do? I always fall short. That's why I need Jesus. And that's true. So why does he say that? Well, when you think about this command to love one another, the key to it is if, we, if we're recognizing who Jesus is, if we're recognizing what he's doing for us, we might not love one another perfectly, but how can we truly understand what he's done for us and not want to love one another? We're called to love one another because we're called to actually understand what Jesus is doing for us. We're, we're called to, to soak it in. And then as we're soaking in the love that he has for us, we can't help but spill it out to others. That's what we're called to do as the church. And yet so often we struggle to do that. We struggle to have a kingdom focus. We start to have our, our own little kingdom focus. It's a challenge for every church at some point that, that we're going to want to build up our church. And to be sure, we're in the midst of planting a church at Little Hills. It would be really nice to have lots of people there, or, or at least a nice group of people there, so it can go on for years and years. We want to, to have a church that goes on for years and years. I'm excited to see whom it is that God brings in. And yet, the key thing that we have to remember as we do that, and we need to remember that whatever church we call home, is that our goal isn't the individual church, the individual building, even the individual gathering of people, it's the overall body of Christ that we're seeking to build. And yet Satan loves to creep in. And it's interesting, Paul ends this passage with this, this part that alludes to Isaiah 52 about every knee bowing, exactly as we see of the servant in Isaiah 52. But it's not the only time that Paul alludes to it. He also looks at that very same passage in Romans 14. And I, I think he has in mind here something that he wants us to carry from passage to passage. Take a look at Romans 14, 10 to 11. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess 
to God. We see that allusion back once again to Isaiah 52, here in the context of judgment. And in some sense, that, that helps us to understand a little bit better what's going on in Philippians, because this confession that's going on is every tongue confesses. Well, we know that not everyone believes in Jesus, and the Bible's clear not everyone will ever believe in Jesus in, in the sense of actually trusting him as their Lord and Savior. The Bible says there will always be people that reject him. So this picture of every tongue confessing is a picture of what happens at the ultimate judgment that everyone's brought before Jesus. At that point, it's utterly clear he's in control. So this is a picture of judgment. And Paul says in Romans 15, as we reflect on that judgment, it should alter the way that we look at one another. Because we know why we can approach that judgment throne. If we're approaching it because we think that we're really good, that we really have it in order, that our church really has it in order, good thing we're not part of that group down the street. And we're going to be in trouble because if that's what our hope is in, if our hope is in ourselves or our churches or our accomplishments or anything like that, then, then we're in trouble. Our hope is in Jesus in the one that we read about here, the one who's accomplished everything for us. And so it's why that Paul, as he reflects on judgment, calls us to to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than spending our time judging one another. Take a look at the beginning of that argument he makes in Romans 14, verse 1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, what's going on here? Paul is dealing with, and he deals with this in several of his letters to the churches, people who who have different opinions. We never see that happen today, do we? They have different opinions of how the church should operate. And and so, so some of them think, well, you shouldn't eat any meat because it might have been presented before idols before before we have the chance to eat it, so you shouldn't eat meat. And, and others think, well, you need to observe certain days of the, the calendar year still from the Jewish calendar uh, and people are arguing, well, I'm holy. I'm not observing these things anymore. I know I'm just in Jesus. And others are saying, well, I'm holy because I'm paying attention to what God thinks is important. And Paul says, well, wait a second. Neither of you, none of you are paying attention to what's important unless what you're paying attention to is the fact that Jesus is the only reason you're ever going to stand before the judgment throne and not get tossed away. He's the one that can make you stand. We're all servants of him if we trust in him. And that's what really matters is that we trust in Jesus, that we follow him. He's not saying that it's not important to wrestle with these things. Paul certainly wrestles with matters like those that I just mentioned. But what he is saying is we need to understand where they fall in perspective. When, when we run into brothers and sisters in Christ, others who have trusted in Jesus that, that differ on some of the nuances of Scripture, they still understand who Jesus is. They still understand the need of a Savior. They still proclaim Jesus, and yet there's a few differences here and there. We should look to whom it is that we serve and whom it is that they serve and realize that that the Master, God, is the one that sets the standard of, of how we qualify, how we measure up. And what he said is anyone who trusts in him, anyone who proclaims the name of Jesus, who repents of his or her sins, is saved. 
Now, why, why, if we know that, and, and probably most of you have heard that a million times, I've heard it a million times, why then do I still fall into the trap of, of wanting to sort of split apart and, and think about how my group is a little bit better? Why do we do that? And I think it really comes down to because we want to be highly thought of. We want the esteem, the glory that comes from, from being right. And sometimes that looks like judging the world and and maybe even using God's truth and things that they that are really wrong in the world, but using them to elevate ourselves rather than to call people to to the strength that only comes in Jesus. Sometimes it looks like judging other Christians and and looking down on them because they don't get the Bible quite as well as as we do in our own minds. And and sometimes we might be right. Sometimes we might have clearer thoughts on something. Sometimes we might be deluding ourselves. But it's about building ourselves up. Sometimes it's even overlooking things in our own midst that are wrong because we want to build up our own group or our own selves, and so we don't want to see some of the things that should be judged. But it comes back to wanting to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. I heard a a fascinating little story this morning on the radio of Dolly Parton being nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, And... it's hard to run into anyone who doesn't appreciate Dolly Parton. I mean, she's such an amazing person, has done so many wonderful things, amazing musician for decades that just keeps turning out amazing music. Someone who who testifies to God's glory too. It's it's so um, so hard to find someone who can really fault her. And yet she turned down the nomination to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and that was striking because she didn't turn it down because she was somehow protesting against something about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Why did she turn it down? She said she didn't feel like she'd earned the right. She's not a rock and roll musician, properly speaking, and she didn't want to take away part of the vote that could go to someone that she thought was more worthy of the honor than herself. So someday if she could earn that worth, she hoped to be reconsidered, but, but she didn't deserve it. And it struck me because I thought, how often is it that you actually hear someone say, this honor you want to give to me that everyone would be celebrating if I got because they, they, they already think I'm, I'm an amazing person. She wouldn't say it that way, of course, because she actually seems to be humble. But if you knew everyone was going to praise you for getting this, would you turn down an honor? Well, that's a little example. But what Jesus does is turn down an even greater honor. He came into the world as a human being so he could be rejected when what he deserved is to come into the world showing his full glory and everyone falling down and being smited by the holiness of God. He didn't do that. He came as a a human being, living like we do, struggling like we do, experiencing the pain of life like we do, so that all you have to do is confess your sin. And tonight, if you haven't, It's a great night to do it. Trust in him. You can be saved. And that's what this hymn that Paul shares with us is about. And as we truly absorb that, we realize, well, I don't deserve glory. I don't deserve to be looked well upon. I don't deserve anything. What does God do? As he exalts Jesus, we're told over and over again in Scripture Jesus takes his flock with him. He changes my heart. He changes your heart as you trust in him. And as we think less of ourselves and try to think more like Jesus, as we depend on his spirit to do that, we think more of others and where they are. What happens? 
we start to see his love and and ultimately we know we'll be called into his kingdom where we'll re- receive the glory of being in his presence a glory that we don't deserve yet paul says in romans 8 is certain that that all whom he has justified will be glorified how amazing is that it's a reminder of whom it is that we are that god has that mercy on us isaiah 45 Isaiah talks about sinners like us. He says, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth, has, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue swear allegiance. What does it look like for every knee to bow and every tongue confess? Well, we see it right there. We see God addressing those who have turned their hearts and trusted in things that can't save them. Just like we do. And he turns to them and he could just pour down the judgment that should come. But instead he invites them to trust in him. To turn from that idolatry to the only one who can offer salvation to him. That's what he calls us to do. And as we absorb that then, to follow him because... We're only here literally by the grace of God. We're not called to be a people who think highly of ourselves. We're called to be a people who think highly of our God. And because he thinks highly of us, despite our unworthiness, to think highly of those around us and show his love to them. We do that. We start to see what it looks like to be baked together and to be God's people. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, too often I think too highly of myself. It's easy to, to, to look at what we do and, and want to build ourselves up to ignore our own flaws and to, to exaggerate our strengths. But Lord, would you help me and would you help all of us to, to not do that, but to look to the one who truly is exalted and worthy of exaltation, to our Savior, and to follow him. And Father, Lord, would you send your Spirit all the more into our lives? Would you strengthen us by the power of your Spirit that you promised to each and every believer that that we might cling to the hope and the promises and the grace that you've given us? As we do, we might think more highly of, of the one whom we serve than ourselves. And as we think highly of our Savior, may we think highly of those whom our Savior has redeemed the people around us that you have placed in our lives to love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's truly a joy to be with you as always. And if this has been an encouragement to you as we think about our God who loves you, would you consider giving this message a like or a share? Not so that people think highly of it, but so people hear about the God who thinks highly of them, who loves them, none of us are worthy, and yet here our God is with us. What a wonderful thing that is. Well, we have something amazing coming up. And I've mentioned it a number of times now. 
we're going to be launching Little Hills in-person worship on March 27th. That's less than two weeks away. And if you're in the area, it would be so wonderful to have you there in person to celebrate with us as, as we launch. And if you're far away and you can't be there in person, it would just be so wonderful to have you watch the live stream and continue to take part in our live streams. We're going to be continuing the live stream steadfast that we've been doing now for two years as of tonight. We're going to be live streaming those services on Sunday nights as well. And we're going to be continuing to, to live stream those other messages that we share on Sunday nights that we've been enjoying going through the Psalms, for example, this year. We're going to keep doing all kinds of online stuff, but we sh would so love to have you there with us in person. I feel like I need to take a moment just to stop and reflect, though, on, on where we've been. Here we are at the two-year mark. We're getting ready to launch. But two years ago today, I posted this. Facebook reminded me of it. As you can see, this is an announcement that we were going to begin our first ever steadfast message series. And I'm just, it's almost hard for me to get my head around the fact that this was two years ago. Two years ago today that this was announced that, that we'd begin we begin just a couple of days later, and, and I, I know at the time I had no idea where it was going. I don't think any of us could imagine what was going to happen with the pandemic or, or how this would develop. Here we are 104 installments later, continuing to share in God's word. And it's so amazing for me to think about that and how God works through these means in spite of ourselves, in spite of myself. And this is why I shouldn't think highly of myself, because I didn't imagine doing it this way. You know, this is what God imagined. And, and last night we, we gathered together a number of us, a, a group of those who've been praying through this whole process at Little Hills. And you can see a, a number of us outside of the, the building where we'll be meeting in less than two weeks now. And also you can see that we were represented in two different countries because Joyce, who you, you know her from being on here every week and she's shared also on, on Sunday nights, she was praying right alongside us in Guanajuato, Mexico. And so we were praying in two different countries last night, praying for everyone who comes to these, these services and everyone that will come into our building. And just how amazing it is that God has brought us to this point. And you're a part of that. So thank you for being here. If it's your first time or you've been here all the way through 104 times, I'm just glad that you're here and I'm amazed by what God's doing. And I, I hope you'll join us as we, we continue that. One way you can join us even this week is to jump in, if you haven't already, into our Psalms reading series. And and this week, we, we heard from Jim last night at 7.30, and you can go and replay that if you missed it. And he walked us through Psalms 31, 32, and 33 and helped us to think about how those Psalms convict us and also give us hope. And so we're going to be reading through those in detail over the week, Psalm 31 tonight, Psalm 32 by Wednesday, Psalm 33 by Friday. And I hope you'll stop by grow.faithtree.com and you can join in conversation with others about those passages, maybe bring up a question or an insight that you have. If there's any way I can be praying for you this week, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen, or you can leave a comment in the comments below. It is always so great to hear from you. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week. I hope to see you next week, and I hope to see you in person in two weeks. Have a blessed week.